Hello, I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. Welcome back to another episode of GDP, the Global Development Primer Podcast. We have two very special guests joining us this week. We have Simon Rin join us along with Michael Jones. And they're joining us from RUSI, which is the Royal United Services Institute in London. They recently developed a policy paper about the UK's influence and future influence in East Africa. We're here to talk to them about that today. Now, Simon Rin is a senior research fellow for Africa at the International Securities Studies Department at RUSI. His experience covers conflict prevention and peace building, stabilization, security and justice, demining, humanitarian governance and small arms control. Now his main research focus is on security of East Africa and the Horn, particularly the security sector, external engagement with stabilization and peace support operations, as well as economic security and the relationship between security and international development. And Michael Jones is also joining us today. Michael is a research fellow in the terrorism and conflict team examining political violence, governance by non-pseudo-state armed groups and the convergence of violent extremism and insurgent militancy in East and Sub-Saharan Africa. Both Michael and Simon are joining us here today on the Global Development Primer podcast to talk about the UK's involvement in East Africa. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today on GDP. Thanks for having us. It's a real pleasure. So, Simon, maybe I can start with you. You've, uh, you recently uh, produced this paper for RUSI uh, to provide a background on the recent UK policy in, in East Africa. Could you give us the uh, the summary of that paper and what it was trying to uh, to argue? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, this uh, was a piece of research that uh, RUSI was working on through 2021-2022. Uh, what we were doing was looking at the UK's effectiveness, its influence, its reputation in four East African countries over the period from around 2015, 2016 to 2022. Um, And that's the period during which we've had uh, the commitment to exit the EU. Uh, We've had a a series of uh, conservative governments, and they've been reiterating some longstanding commitments in UK policy circles to have more integration between issues of trade, development, uh, defense, diplomacy. So these aspirations have been there for a while. Um, But what happened in the last few years was there were definitive policy statements around that issue, um, the the integration agenda. Um, And linked with that, we had, you know, Brexit was, there was a referendum on Brexit in 2016 in the UK, leaving the EU. So that was in the air. And then in 2020, we had the announcement that the UK aid budget would be cut back significantly by that government. Um, and so all of this was coming together around that period, creating quite a new policy context for the UK's work um, globally on, on issues around international development, diplomacy, defence and so on. And then East Africa is a place that was flagged in a in a really a flagship policy by um, the government in 2021, where they said definitively, 
we are now going to link everything we do across those agendas. We'll be much more integrated. And after leaving the EU, we will be, you know, we have freedom of choice in terms of our partnerships. Uh, we'll be proactive in solving problems. We're going to work with lots of different people. Watch this space is what they said. And they, they highlighted East Africa as a specific area of engagement and said they would do you know lots of interesting and clever things there so that was the jumping off point for us we wanted to know was any of that stuff happening how was it playing out what would the um you know what made things happen for the uk when it succeeded what was holding the uk back when it failed uh, so that's the context for the research which led to this paper uh, it was informed by four case studies in Sudan, Somalia, Ethiopia, and Kenya. Um, yeah, so happy to talk about that now, really. That's great. Simon, thanks very much. Uh, Mikey, do you, do you have anything else to, to, to contribute to that? Uh, no, not necessarily. I think the, the only other thing really to mention is over the course of uh, the, the research being uh, designed and delivered, it, it obviously coincided with a very uh, tumultuous time in UK domestic politics, um, particularly around sort of ministerial turnover. Um, that includes turnover in Downing Street. Uh, we, I think we saw three foreign secretaries over the course of the project um and and also co coincided with significant uh structural reforms within uh the uk aid and uh, diplomatic establishment so it, it was trying to uh not only understand as, as simon said um you know how the uk has been approaching these areas and these themes um but also you know over the course of the project trying to understand how these uh, much more recent uh disruptions and and changes have uh have had an impact or not had an impact, uh, as the case may be. Okay, that's th thanks very much for, to both of you for that. So, where where is the UK right now in terms of uh, being a reliable trade and aid partner in the region? Is, is there are they still the go to place? Is 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 it uh, is London still having uh, influence in the region or is it on a decline? Um, well. East Africa is an area of, you know, traditional UK engagement. Um, uh, many of the countries there are, are former colonies, and there's there's a, you know, strong links in terms of sometimes trade, but certainly in terms of cultural relationships, um, sometimes security commitments, and so on. Um, the the big aid recipient historically in the region, the biggest aid recipient would have been Ethiopia, maybe followed closely by Kenya. The big trade partner would be Kenya, um, although there have been high hopes for, for Ethiopia in recent years. And then Sudan and Somalia are slightly special cases because you know, for decades now they've been insecure. Um, there have been difficult relationships between the two governments. So I think there's variation across the four countries in terms of how those countries and their governments see the UK and what kind of um, dealings the, the two countries are you know, the, the region has had with the UK. But um, I guess one of the findings in the research is, you know, as Mikey's hinted, it was a really erratic period in UK politics. And so that's had a knock-on effect in terms of relationship with the four countries. For a time, I think, you know, when we were doing these, uh, we were doing the research, we did a lot of interviews with business people, government officials, 
civil society people, journalists, uh, everyone you can think of, really. I guess there were some patterns in that um, almost everyone you spoke to had a sense that, you know, the relationships were being disrupted. Maybe the UK wasn't as predictable as it had been. In some cases, they were a little bit worried. Maybe that was because of their specific um, relationship to the UK. If you're, I don't know, working for an NGO in Sudan, you hear about budget cuts, you're worried. Um, but maybe it was to do with um, people's longstanding relationships with the UK and other areas. For example, uh, a lot of elite people will pass through the UK uh, for you know university or whatever uh, and come on holiday there. So I think there was a fairly consistent pattern with people saying, look, things are disrupted. We don't know where the UK is headed. Maybe it's not as predictable a partner as it was. Um, I think maybe over the last year or so, there's a sense that things have settled down somewhat. Um, and that would in some ways be because some of the big policy changes and some of the structural changes that the UK government had tried to push have started to work their way through. So aid, you know, aid budgets were cut by around 50% uh, for the region. Um, around that period, 2020, 21, 22. Um, the absolute cuts were an issue, but also the lack of predictability that was associated with that was a major issue. And um, I guess we've started to get beyond that now. There's more predictability. And then some of the changes in terms of the the, the way the UK structured itself, they you know, created a new ministry for foreign affairs and development. That's taken time to bed down. And then this, this Brexit issue, it hasn't entirely been resolved, but there's been a sort of a settling down and an agreement reached with the EU. And so on those three major fronts, um, I guess there's a sense of a little bit more stability. Um, and the UK, there may be a feeling the UK getting, in a sense, back on track. Um, but of course, things move on and not just in those few years, but even prior, lots of other countries were gaining traction in that part of the world, from China to Turkey to the UAE. And so the UK, whilst it might have got its house in order a little bit more than it had a couple of years ago, I think it's there's a sense that it's facing competition. And if you ask people about the UK's reputation, maybe there's a sense of relative decline in the sense that you know there are these new partners there are different offers and the uk now has to compete really against others i don't know if you've got anything to add there mikey no i think you you covered uh most of the bases there i think i think we can't um overemphasize the impact of the of the aid cuts um and i think that's sort of cross-cutting issue across the uh the four countries that we that we looked at just in terms of their their scale um and as simon says the the lack of predictability or forward planning and and questions around how some of that was communicated which i think um even if it is settling down now there are implications for the longevity and uh, credibility of uk relationships that i think still potentially needs to be sort of worked through um and it's a lot easier uh, severing or, or damaging those relationships than investing the uh, social and di diplomatic capital and, and time necessary to sort of revive them. So 
Um, you know, I don't necessarily think that we've seen the full long-term sort of implications of those cuts uh, trickle all the way all the way down. Um, but certainly in the immediate aftermath, there was uh, yeah significant you know significant disruption um, at, at various sort of ends of the uh, the development and diplomatic um, uh, supply chain. Um, right. The, the only other thing I would flag is uh, that, that sort of wider question around what the UK actually offers. Um, you know, across the four countries, I think there were question marks over the um, the flexibility and feasibility of UK strategy, uh, particularly at the country level, um, where in, for, you know, to, to take a, a couple of quick examples, in Somalia, you know, essentially a, a, an effort to pursue a sort of good enough state capable of, uh, you know, dealing with its with its own humanitarian crises, containing at the very least um, Al Shabaab, uh, Al Qaeda's regional affiliates, and so on. Um, you know, again, these are this is a strategy that's been in place for over a decade, but it's not entirely clear how feasible those long term objective objectives actually are, particularly when you then combine in. Uh, cuts in time, uh, cuts in resourcing, uh, and so on. Um, you saw similar question marks over UK engagement in Sudan, where during the political transition, there was significant and, and arguably somewhat successful investment in some of these um, social and economic reforms. Um, but again, you know, alongside a lot of other Western partners, there were big questions over how, how far that strategy was actually the right one. And, you know, obviously with, with, the benefit of hindsight, um, you know, it, it does appear to have fed into at least some of the some of the issues we're now seeing. Um, and, and just to sort of do the, the full tour um, in Kenya, I think you, you see a bit more of a robust framework sort of, uh, you know, underpinned by the UK Kenya uh, strategic partnership and the adjacent economic partnership. Um, but again, talking to particularly local stakeholders, but but other you know other stakeholders as well um there was a question over some of the hierarchy of objectives that the uk is pursuing uh either where they came into tension or, or potentially even came into sort of uh conflict um you know it, it wasn't necessarily entirely clear which elements of this sort of broad uh suite of of ambitions the uk is pursuing in kenya which, which one of those takes takes precedent um so that the question or, or lack of detail over at least some of the strategy making uh, at a country and and crucially at a regional level uh, in East Africa, uh, I think has really framed a lot of these other problems that uh, that Simon's referenced and and ultimately conditions how far the UK is able to remain a a substantive player uh, in the region. Yeah, so these are really interesting points, and I think a couple of themes are are sort of coming out here that you know you mentioned that. You know, Brexit what occurred, and it, it it may have seemed like there was a bit of a you know rattling in the in the in the dinner hall that the the chairs weren't all sort of sorted together, and that may have undermined some confidence. Uh, is is that's is that a perception as to why there may be challenges coming up that that there that uh, the countries in in East Africa are saying, well, uh, you know, things seem a little bit uh, ruckusy. Uh, here, so maybe this isn't the right partnership to go with, or is it more that you've got the other big actors, like you mentioned, Simon, uh, particularly China, that that has a pre-built 
sort of package, uh, you know, in conjunction with Belt and Road and other other grand strategies to say, here's what we can offer quickly and immediately, and we'll sort the details out later. So is it, is it, are these challenges because of a perception that, that the UK is in a bit of chaos or is it because others are coming to the table quicker with those, uh, those packages? Um, yeah, yeah. Let me try and take that. I mean, I think it's both on others coming in. I think there's, you know, if you're, it's difficult to generalize across Africa, but you know the average African state—they're going to welcome having alternatives, a menu of options in terms of who to deal with when it comes to aid, grants, loans, diplomatic partnerships, trade. Um, so for most of them, it's just great news that they can—they—they they feel they're getting more choice, more freedom of movement, and they can perform a bit of a balancing act when they need to. You know, you can raise the specter of a partnership with Russia on security one day and then get a better deal out of, you know, insert Western country the, the next day. So I think I think there's that. And, you know, the the issues around the colonial period and the, the lingering animosity around it is also a factor there, too. It's it's actually, I think, for many people understandably a little bit satisfying to to have these new alternatives um but yeah as you, as you suggested you know some of these things the, the sense that the uk appeared to be kind of disrupted and unpredictable was real too um i i think our, our question when we went into the research was even though it's being said in you know wherever you look the global media in the uk political coverage that things like brexit or um, the end of this long-standing development ministry, which had gained a great reputation, Department for International Development, and aid cuts. It being said, these are all bad, bad things, and they're going to do the UK damage. Our question was, well, you know, is that the case? Um, if it is, why is it the case? Uh, can you isolate any of these uh, causes and say that one's more important than the others? And uh, how do they interact with these external geopolitical changes? And then going back to Brexit specifically, I think whilst it is difficult to isolate these different things one from another, our finding really was that Brexit was in a way the least of the worries, uh, the, the the least significant impediment. And in terms of day-to-day -day working, couldn't really find that many examples of Brexit throwing up barriers where there were barriers, they'd been overcome. They, right. they, they were workarounds. Um, sort of more like a big um, popular hype that oh look, it's 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 chaotic, but the 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 working of the system continues on. I, I think Simon, your point about the 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 folding up of development into foreign affairs uh, is, is really notable because that's not the only country in, who, who's done that. In, in Canada, here we've seen a similar. Kind of transition and almost quelling of any sort of development institutes sort of being uh, folded into global affairs or foreign affairs and kind of coming last on the on the roster that it, it, it deprioritizes uh the the potential for that kind of cooperation and i believe that message is strongly felt in, in many parts of the, the the global south with traditional aid partners and uh, and and collaborators that say well there's seems to be a deprioritizing of these commitments to development that that do bring about 
you know, health and security benefits if, if exercised correctly. Is that something that, that we're picking up here as well? Um, yeah, I think, I think deprioritization is in a way the real issue. The, 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 the conservative governments in the UK in, in recent years um, have not understood development in the same way as some of their predecessors. They've, they've, uh, I, you know, rightly in, in many ways emphasised the importance of uh, trade and financing generally and other forms of partnership and have said, well, look, this can't all be about aid. We just, you know, we can't, we can't achieve even poverty reduction or economic development globally through just throwing aid at the, the problem. We need to look at this in a more holistic way. But of course, there's politics around that too. And in part to signify their political leanings, there was a decision taken to uh, to fault to to end or to to merge. You know, to use the correct technical and legal term, the Department for International Development together with the Foreign Office. I think, as you say, globally, there's been a bit of a trend on this for at least a decade. You know, Australia, Canada, uh, Netherlands, Germany. That they there's many countries now that have this set up or have moved into this kind of arrangement over the, the decade. Um, I think the bigger issue we found was lack of planning around this. I guess our view in the end is that what matters more than the structure is the political commitment, and you can probably make different structures work if the commitment's there. Um, but if you're going to do it, if you're going to move one way or another from you know an integrated structure to a separated structure or back again, as if you look in the history books, the UK has done with successive uh, political administrations, then you've got to plan it because it's going to take years. And I think uh, we are now two, are we two, two years down the line from announcing a, a merger. Um, it's only really now starting to settle down. And we're starting to see some of the benefits arguably of having more integrated structure as well as drawbacks. There's always pros and cons in any structure. So I guess folks in your, in your, in your paper here, you, you do make some recommendations uh, about what the UK can do with foreign policy going forward uh, in the region. Are, are there specific details that you could, uh, you could share with our listeners today about what you think needs to happen as part of this potential planning? Uh, yeah, I mean, some of our recommendations were specific to the countries in the region. Some were more about the UK system as a whole. Um, maybe I'll pick out a couple and, and then uh, Michael can fill in the gaps. Um, one of the things we've said relates to strategy. Um, you know, we didn't always get uh, detailed access to every strategy on the books, but um, there was a sense that some of the UK's country-based strategies were maybe not keeping pace with events uh, or maybe assumptions needed looking at again. It's been a very, it's not just the UK that's been tumultuous these last few years. We've had civil wars and droughts and insurgencies and changes of government in the region. So um, some of that needed looking at. And I think also we've said something about looking beyond the country box, as it were. So do you need regional strategy or strategies around different themes? Um, we've also made some comments about relationship building and partnerships. Um, 
one of the areas the UK come, came, came out quite well on was its perceived quality of staff um, and some of the relationships it's been able to maintain linking in-country up to global levels in Geneva, New York, wherever. Um, we think that stuff's actually pretty good compared to some of the UK's partners, competitors, rivals. Um, but maybe in some cases there's there's room for improvement. Again, maybe sometimes a bit more strategy needs to be put behind some of the relationships and structures the UK's built, and maybe some resourcing is needed to, to keep them going. Um, and then at the system level, um, we've made some comments there about um, better integrating the development issue and questions around aid into the structure of decision making in the UK system. So one of the probably quite promising changes the UK government had made very, very recently post our, our research really is to create a place on the National Security Council for the minister who covers Africa and international development. So that's potentially very good, but um, you've got to use that um, in a in a thought through way. You need to make sure the issues concerning Africa and international development are being put on the agenda proactively in front of other decision makers whose problem, you know, relates to day to day hard security or spending of the money or whatever. And that's going to take a lot of time to to work through, and it's going to need. Um, Bit of commitment and a, a bit of resource put behind it so that i mean there's just three areas where we made recommendations there's probably half a dozen others in the paper um michael did you want to add anything uh no i i think just to pick up on a couple of uh a couple of those points um it, you know particularly given uh recent events i, th I think one of the areas that, that simon's referenced but um we we sort of flag specifically in terms of the recommendations were the need for uh, better clarity over roles, resourcing, membership and mandates of some of these more informal um, interstate sort of groupings. So, so for instance, the Quad in uh, Sudan, where, you know, in, in relation to sort of immediate uh, crisis management demands, we've seen the US and uh, Saudi Arabia, so, so two members of the Quad sort of leading the way um, in their own sort of uh, joint Jeddah dialogue process um, to try to, you know, expedite humanitarian access, try to uh, bolster uh, ceasefires between the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces currently um, battling it out in, in Sudan. Um, and yet the other two members of the quads, the UK and uh, the UAE didn't necessarily feature in those in those discussions. Uh, at least initially. Um, so I, I think there is, you know, there, there is, there are questions over what is the role of these organizations and or, or sort of coalitions and what is the UK's role specifically within those coalitions, um, particularly at times of extreme stress and crisis management. So, uh, you know, when there is conflict, when there is uh, mass atrocity, when there is uh, dire humanitarian um, uh, fallout and, and uh, need, you know, how do those groupings actually function in a coherent way and, and how can the UK best best contribute? So I think that's one example of a, of a wider 
uh, set of set of needs to clarify how the UK relates to these sort of formal or indeed um, you know more formalized international financial bodies, for instance. Um, the other area I think worth uh, talking about specifically is that is that sort of vertical connection between country and regional level engagement. So. Uh, as as Simon and I have both mentioned, you know the the, the need to potentially marry up state and uh, regional strategies in a bit more of a coherent way. But then also when it comes to um, <clears throat> diplomacy, active engagement, programming, and so on, uh, ensuring that specific uh, sort of special envoy positions, for instance, who who you know uh, deliberately rove around particular regions have the access, resourcing, and, and communication necessary within specific uh, high commissions or, or embassies in the region. Um, you know, marrying up that regional focus with the day-to-day -day sort of functionings of an embassy. Um, so again, I think that's a sort of material and, and quite quick tangible change that could be, that could be achieved. Um, and then, you know, a lot of the other recommendations really sort of focus around um how to improve sort of day-to-day -day integration across uh across government and uh particularly you know we've seen that a concerted push to better tie together defense diplomacy and development um this hasn't necessarily as uh, this report and, and some of the supplementary reports show in, in each particular country this hasn't always been particularly successful um but where there does seem to be the most significant silo is still between how defense um interacts with with these other other uh processes so better tying in the ministry of defense better tying in uh defense strategy to both diplomacy and 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 development approaches i think is i think is key uh and and finally just just one sort of smaller point around brexit as it as it came up earlier um you know a recommendation that the uk does need to be better at how at how it communicates um its approach and positioning in the region. So in relation to Brexit specifically, clearly communicating the scope, the scale, the mechanics of UK-EU cooperation, um, in large part because you know a lot of local, regional and international audiences do have a perception that Brexit has had a material and operational impact on the UK that has, has proved disastrous. And, and while there are examples where there has been disruption and, and uh, clearly it has had an impact, um, it's not necessarily, at least in the four countries that we looked at, uh, immediately obvious that this is on the sort of assumed scale that uh, that, that many believe it, it it would have been. So clearly, messaging what the UK approach is and how it is working with other partners in the region and to what ends, uh, I think will go a long way in helping the UK have a better have a better um, uh, vision for what it can actually bring to the region. Well, that's uh, that's a great summary, Mikey. Thank you very much for that, and thank you, Simon, for uh, for, uh, for 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 joining us here. I mean, you know, as I do say in cricket, you know, ninety six not out. You're you're still still in the game when it uh -huh. when it comes to uh, uh, having that potential for uh, you know deep impact and uh, long lasting uh, cooperation in the region. And I certainly do hope that. Uh, you know, against some of the other proposed development packages, uh, partnerships that are emerging, notably from China, uh, and seeing some of Russia's actions as well in the region, I do hope there is a swing that comes back to uh, to putting uh, you know the UK's um, approach in a in a stronger position going forward. 
Gentlemen, uh, your your paper is available uh, through RUSI, which is the Royal United Service Institute. Uh, we've had Simon, uh, Simon Rin and Mikey Jones join us today to talk about their research about uh, the role of uh, UK in East Africa. And I just want to thank you both for joining us today on GDP. No problem. Thanks, guys.